102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of medical and psychological chit-chat. I'm Dr Autonomy and I'm joined this morning by Dr Malice, Lolly Doc and two phenomenal special guests that, to be honest, I can't quite believe have chosen to spend their Sunday mornings with us. I'm very thrilled to have them both and I think you're going to love today's show. Let me tell you who they are. The first special guest we've got this morning is Pamela Nathan. She's a clinical and forensic psychologist and psychotherapist, and she also happens to be director of the Aboriginal Australian Relations Program at CASSIE, which you'll hear lots more about. And she is part of a group of psychologists and psychological professionals who are all about using psychoanalytic tools to help Aboriginal communities to feel safe and supportive. Dr Malice came across Pamela for the first time at a conference recently and was so enthralled that he he wouldn't let her leave the room until she agreed to come and join us on Radiotherapy. So uh, we're really thrilled to have her on today and I think you're going to find the interview fascinating. As well as Pamela, we are very privileged to have our second special guest, Jen Kelsang-Dornying, who is a Buddhist monk. He is the principal teacher at uh, the Kadampa Meditation Centre here in Melbourne. But his story is not the story of all Buddhist monks. He certainly wasn't born into the tradition. And a few decades ago, you would have found him working in telecommunications, living in South London. So he's here to tell us about his transition from telecommunications to Buddhism and to share some wisdom with us about how to get through the daily grind and life's difficulties that we all encounter. So... Go and grab your coffee right now and sit down because you are not going to want to miss a moment of today's show as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case loving you. Good morning team. Dr. Malice, lovely to see you. Oh, what a, what a finale for the 2017 year. That intro, I'm just waiting for the unfolding of the whole session. It's amazing. I know, very lucky we are today. Privileged, yes. Yeah. And Lolly Doc, good morning to you. Good morning, and I completely understand uh, how our Buddhist monk feels, because the NBN makes me want to turn into a monk too, <laughs> and run away. Oh, I could spend the whole hour, actually, talking about my struggles with the internet this past week, but Stop Maybe me. we should do that for next year. Great, exciting. Yeah, yeah lose all our listeners. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Pamela Nathan, firstly, can I welcome you to the show? It's lovely to have you here today. Yeah, good morning. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in keeping with our us- usual traditions, before we go to our two special guests, we are going to do a little bit of catch-up about what's been happening lately. Uh, Lolly Doc, I can see some papers rustling in front of you. What have you noticed over the last couple of weeks? Well, I thought I'd wrap up. Uh, I realise I'm being quite negative here, which is probably not a great kind of wrap-up to 2017, but I thought I'd do 2017's 
top five medical mishaps. Ah. Now, I just need to... I think we do this often that this is the last show for the year for our particular radiotherapy team because, as the listeners will know, there's different groups of us on different Sundays. But radiotherapy is not finishing today. I just feel the need to point that out. We are still going to be around for several more Sundays. Uh, It's just our particular crew of Lolly Doc, Dr. Mellis and myself. We're all one big happy family. We are all one big happy... But we're aware that this is our last show for the year. So, hence the uh, end of year theme. Mm. Mm. So I'm going to start with number five. So number five was a very interesting... So surgery is not rife with... um Randomised control trials. They're not. They're not a group of people who like to test their their interventions. But interestingly, this year was the first year that um, a UK orthopaedic group decided to do a randomised control trial looking at arthroscopic surgery in shoulders and found that it offered no improved pain relief compared to sham surgery, and that's been thrown out. So I thought that was an amazingly big thing for surgery in 2017, and 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 probably sets a foundation for a whole lot of improvements in the future. Did, did you actually say sham surgery? I did Could say you, sham surgery, and they what, actually still do what, sham what, surgery what and randomised control. What does a sham control. surgeon do? So they make an incision and they open the space into which they were going to operate, but they don't insert anything into the operating field, and then they close the space. And the patient obviously is not told whether they belong to the sham Correct. or the control group. Correct, that but they, they do, the they do consent yes. after they've been held down. How amazing <laughs> is it that people are willing to consent to to that, <coughs> to be part of that study? I think that's incredible. I do too. People are pretty amazing what they'll agree to do. <laughs> For science. <laughs> For science. So it's there's true. five medical claims of 2017. Are they all sham claims? No, no, this is real. No, but I guess... Um, well, yeah, negative, disappointing medical claims. Well, this, that one wasn't so disappointing, was it? But this, this the next is, one, this all, the next one, that's all in my mind. The this is, these, these are all <laughs> negatives. So, in, I don't know whether you remember this, but this caught my eye in May this year. Roche nationally recalled their five milligram Valium packets. I don't know whether you remember this at all because there was tampering in their distribution centre. So, thirty thousand packets. Uh, someone had been. Um, taking the Valium pills out and obviously on-selling them and making a, a fortune out of them. But, of course, all these patients were receiving in their Valium packets cholesterol tablets, um, uh, what else they have, Panadine and um, gastric ulcer tablets. Far out. Yeah, so that was a big deal. So for about a month, there was a group of, a substantial group of Australians who were going through Valium withdrawals trying to access Valium. And, of course, it's a controlled substance. So it was a big, it was quite a big deal. And it sort of would make you crazy as well if you thought you were taking your normal medication but it wasn't having wasn't the working. same impact. Yeah. Um, what's number three? Number three. Um, so this was, this was to do to, with the paediatric population. So tonsillectomies um, traditionally were given codeine post-operatively for pain relief and there was a, a, an FDA and also a TGA, Australian TGA, warning about some deaths after codeine for tonsillectomies and these continued this this was the first year that codeine scripts stopped being prescribed post tonsillectomy for pain so i thought that was pretty cool that's a pretty important finding that one but um interestingly it did take about two or three years for doctors to stop prescribing it which is a bit silly number two congratulations australia you've become the highest prescriber per capita of oxycontin and similar opiates Mm. so 2017 was the year that we beat America. What's OxyContin used for? So it's a pain relief substance. It's a it's an opiate, uh, the same class as morphine, and it's highly addictive. But more importantly, it, it's, it's got a high street value, so it gets sold on 
um, gets diverted and people make money. Dr. Mellis? And the New Yorker in the last uh, week of last month in October has had a lead article on the history of the drug and how that came to be, a billion-dollar producing uh, pharmaceutical enterprise for a family and now this is a major disclosure article and we can perhaps provide the link later if not Mm. the pdf of the article extraordinary history of that from a a philanthropic family of three brothers who are doctors and they then started marketing this in the 1990s to become now there's something like 145 deaths a day in america from opiate uh, addiction overdose Mm. side effects 145 per day it's it's a it's a, an incredible epidemic. Makes you want to buy a gun, doesn't it? <laughs> no, okay. American humor. And number one, 2017, we ushered in the following stat: two thirds of Australians are now officially overweight. Congratulations! And by 2020, a third of Australians over the age of 15 will be obese. Can you just Happy say days. those stats again? I can. So this year, two thirds of Australians are now overweight. Two thirds. Yep. So that's a BMI between 25 and 30. And by 2020, if you're over the age of 15, you've got a third, third likelihood that you'll be obese. So BMI Which, in my 30. understanding, sets you off on a particular trajectory if you're already Yeah, so diabetes, heart yeah. disease, eye disease, kidney disease. And just to add a, a brightener to that, if that's happening in adolescence, then the precursors to that are happening in childhood. Yeah. Because that doesn't happen overnight to get an adolescent who's overweight with a body mass index of such a change. And so there's a profound set of questions arising now at the moment in Australian health, public health, of what is going on with infant child health and, and welfare. Yeah. That that's already the end point in adolescence. Amazing. Is there anything bright on the yeah, horizon? Yeah, wait around us out for the well, year. Well, no, I thought I'd let, let Pamela talk about um, brightness intergenerational trauma um, and Indigenous yeah. health. And Thank goodness we're going to round out the show exactly with right. a Buddhist monk to teach us all about positive mind. Absolutely. Far out. It's never been more needed. As I said in our introduction, um, we are feeling very lucky today because we have two phenomenal guests on and we're going to go to the first person now who is Pamela Nathan but before we do let me tell you a little bit more about her. So Pamela is a clinical and forensic psychologist and psychoanalytic psychotherapist wow that's a mouthful Um, and she works in private practice but she's also the director of the Australian Aboriginal Relations Program at Cassie and you'll hear lots more about Cassie as we get into uh, the conversation today. Pamela has completed research in Aboriginal health in Victoria and the Northern Territory and she's published three books. She was previously a sociologist working as an academic and researcher for over a decade and she's also worked in the public sector in clinical and forensic settings um, for 15 years. She continues to practice, teach, workshop, supervise and publish in journals, booklets and papers in the psychological and psychoanalytic arena. And we are really thrilled to have her join us today. Uh, Dr Malice, you came across Pamela at a conference a few months ago, didn't you, and were quite taken by her? Well, if you think it's thrilling to have Pamela as a guest here, imagine being at a conference with Pamela's keynote speaker. 
and hearing the wealth and wisdom of, as you've just described, clinical background, forensic, psychoanalytic psychotherapist. And what really struck me is someone who's got such a full-on life clinically, why would she then become a director <laughs> of an organisation which we'll talk about? Well, and more indeed, importantly, how? <laughs> and how, how do you even sort of create the space in mm. your mind? Because a directorship for many people is a full-time job. So one of the backgrounds that I really found fascinating at the conference, and we're referring to the conference we mentioned here in our September program, and that was the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists uh, Psychotherapy Faculty had a conference in Uluru, Central Australia, called the Centre Heart of the Matter, Deep Listening and Join the Dance. So the title was already so provocative, mm. you know, heart of centre of the heart and deep listening. And then, of course, Pamela came with this incredible ability to translate care and safety and security in the most accessible way to a very serious professional audience on a very serious matter. And just by introduction, I'd liken it to if... One is talking about care and safety and security, which are the acronyms for CASI. If we talk about, for example, care in Australia with sun exposure to sunlight, you're really impressed by someone who knows about the mechanism, ultraviolet lights and what they do to the skin and how it damages and then creates serious concerns. So understanding a mechanism for which you need to take care to create safety really leaves a deep impression. And that's, in fact, what Pamela was able to do, to give us the mechanisms of what it is that the Aboriginal community needs care and safety and security for. So what I'd like to, first of all, welcome uh, Pamela. It's an extraordinary privilege to have you here after and the busy schedule that you're involved in. Mm, Nice to meet again. Lovely to catch up. Could you perhaps introduce this whole area of how did you get introduced with, as, as, as the intro uh, uh, autonomy mentioned, there was more than enough on your plate anyway. <laughs> how did you possibly get introduced to the idea that you need to do something more like this? Well, I, um, as I, I had been in the uh, centre about 30 years ago and when the intervention, the government intervention got rolled out, um, I think I was so shocked by hearing about the army going in and it was going into places like Andaria and Hermansburg and I really felt deeply uh, um, concerned. And so I wrote for the first time a paper from a psychoanalytic perspective uh, about the intervention and the concerns about the intervention. And it happened that one of my colleagues, uh, who um, Anne Cantor, who I'm indebted to, has uh, very much supported Cassie, um, heard the paper and she um, was very insistent about uh, me joining Cassie. And so I sort of, um, I must admit, I uh, delayed it and <laughs> kept saying, well, no, because at that stage, I think I understood it as being very much a research organisation, which in fact it wasn't. But anyway, I got on board and um, I said, if you work in the centre where I still had a lot of friends and with the same organisation that I'd worked with, which was essential 
Australian Aboriginal Congress, which is a large health organisation, then I said, I'll do it. And she was very keen to work at the grassroots, to work organically and to really maximise self-determination. So that's how I came on board. Well, and obviously there was a little ambivalence, to put it mildly, at the beginning to take on such a job. Now, when you then work at the grassroots level, could you explain a bit what that actually means? Yes, and I have to say too that one, it's been, I must say, an amazing journey over the last five years, but one couldn't possibly know what one was taking on at the time. And perhaps if one had, I would have still (laughs) said no. (laughs) But actually, it's been an incredibly uh, rewarding journey. I think um, I was very privileged to know people um, and families Um, still working with Congress and who are on the board of Congress and I was good friends with the director and so um, that enabled us to work with the organisation so to speak on the ground it can be very much dependent on relationships um, sort of an entry in and so that provided um, an entry and we're able to work together and in a way that's what it means by sort of working on the ground is working together with the community and having no sort of preconceptions but working alongside the community with the way they would like to work. Could, could you, to give us a feel and a flavour and the listeners also to appreciate what this working in a relationship of a project, uh, a, a, a recent project or a favourite project or a most important project or one that's mindfully fully occupying you, to get, get a, a feel for what working with a relationship with the community involves? Well, I think in terms of, I mean, two programs have emerged uh, in the last few years. And if I think about the uh, people that we have on the ground um, with the Men's Chilera movement and they're working with five communities out west, we have um, a program manager who had worked with and lived with a community for 15 years, Mount Liebig, and he had been taught by uh, Anankari how to make traditional tools. Um, and then the cultural translator, Nathan Brown, now speaks two languages, Yankajara and Luricha, and they work closely with Martin Jugadai, who's a Nankari, who is from Hearts Bluff, from one of the other communities. So those men have great credibility because of their relationships with the community and they're not certainly not regarded as strangers and the two white fellas are really not regarded as white fellas um, on the other project I'm, I'm uh, very pleased to say that the son of the man that I worked with 30 years ago uh, headed up this project and he is now the senior research officer so that was a terrific thing to have Kim, him come on board he's been a very busy man he's a sort of senior cultural leader and to have him come and work on that project uh, and work with the men was also terrific. Now, you mentioned uh, rediscovering the art and the heritage of creating the tools and instruments. Uh, Could you expand on what's, what's the big deal about that? Because it is a big deal. It was mentioned at the conference and we had the demonstration and it is profound. And that was an eye opener for me of... So what's the big deal in it? Yes, look, I think uh, those traditional tools, uh, for, for, for people who don't know, the, they're traditional tools like making boomerangs, like making spears, uh, shields, and uh, 
we're actually making them without tools but with axes and with uh, original stone they're called kunti out there uh, the big deal in a way is that they had been regarded as weapons by the police so they'd been confiscated by the police so it involved us having conversations with the police to say these aren't weapons they're traditional tools you know let people make them um, the fact that they are traditional that we're recognizing and giving value through the men and that's something that was important to them the project had started with RFDS with a man called David Beveridge and he was working with Martin Jugadai at the time so it was sort of picking that up and giving recognition to their traditional uh, objects to their traditional practices and also because uh, the giving of knowledge from the older men to the younger men is traditionally <coughs> very important and a whole generation of men uh, particularly after 1967 when a lot of them had been working as cattlemen and uh, then when the wages came in, no one wanted to employ them. They ended up drinking, ended up in jail. So a whole level generation of knowledge got lost. So the giving of the knowledge and facilitating that from the elders to the younger generation and strengthening those connections and providing a continuity from the old time into the new is very important and it sort of breach, it bridges the some of the cultural ruptures that have occurred and they're on ancestral lands. Perhaps we'll come back to the cultural mm. ruptures, yes. Mm. Uh, you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R, and we're talking to Pamela Nathan who's a psychologist and psychotherapist who does a lot of work with Aboriginal communities. Pamela, when I was reading about what Cassie does, one of the things that really sparked my interest was this concept of using psychoanalytic tools to help Aboriginal communities. And I don't really know what that means. Can you help me understand what that means in practice, how you go about that and um, what the benefits are? Look, in it, it, I, I have to say... Uh we're, we're, it's an ongoing project thinking about what we're doing mm. um, but I think certainly I don't think the projects could have emerged in the same way without uh, a psychoanalytic frame and I think essentially it is taking from the consulting room into the community the practice and the analytic stance and the principles um, into uh, the community so essential sort of principles like even though it's on country and it's not in the consulting room tools like uh, containment and holding um, use, encouraging the story to be told and using yourself as an instrument to feel what might be occurring in a situation uh, and then uh, helping interpret what might be going on uh, I think facilitating emotional Shifts from uh, more threatened, persecutory, fearful feelings to uh, feelings of concern to really encouraging people to tell their story, which is what happens in the consulting room. And often in, in the world of trauma, uh, people are unable to find the words to tell their story. There's often, a, you know, a void. So we can help them tell their story their way in their language um, and I think that's something that Cassie's been able to uh, facilitate. Uh, we've certainly really sort of privileged the cultural and privileged the racial um, and been very aware of some of the, uh, the history and how that can impact on modern day, how it impacts on the psyche. Uh, it's sort of helping to facilitate 
in in the world of trauma, the psychic deadness, to uh, help people become more enlivened, and that's going the Aboriginal way. For example, with the men on country, they're on country, so that's where they do feel alive. That's where their emotion is. That's where they're attached to their grandfathers. There's a mourning which ensues, and we would say from our position that that facilitates psychic growth. Uh, it gives them a sense of belonging, reinforces a sense of belonging. They follow their song lines, reinforces a sense of identity, and all of those things facilitate growth. So, in a way, it's like the consulting room. It's providing, uh, I think, a frame where uh, a process can be facilitated. And we don't know what that is and how it's going to emerge. Um, so that's that's what happens. So mm. these are the two projects have become very emergent. Sounds very progressive, in fact. Uh, Dr Malice. Well, wasn't that just a superb summary of translating the clinical experience of a psychoanalytic therapist to the country and community setting and how the the constant is actually the therapist, but how wide the frame has to be expanded to accommodate where there's such a trauma called cultural rupture. Now, we could, of course, go into that, but what I'd be very interested in, and I'm sure our listeners also, is when we're dealing with trauma rupture in the individual, that's hard enough in the consulting room to take care of ourselves. I'd be very interested, Pamela, of how you as a psychologist, psychoanalytic therapist and director take care of yourself and the staff who are then exposed to this cultural rupture, generational cultural rupture, and the profound impact that must have on you and the staff. How do you self-care and keep the Cassie equivalent parallel, not only safe and secure environment for the culture, but for your culture as professionals? Well, I think uh, for the people on the ground, we do try to, uh, well, I certainly... Uh, you know, we supervise, we mentor, so we process, we, um, I mean, uh, you, you take in a lot. So there is uh, an emphasis on trying to uh, hear the story and process it and make sense of it and then perhaps transform and act on it. Um, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable when people ask that question because, of course, this is the lives of many Aboriginal people on country and I think, um, you know, in terms of we would use the term, you know, counter-transference, that the predominant counter-transference is one of a hurting heart for Aboriginal people and there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of loss, there's a lot of sorry business, uh, there can be um, anger, they can get whacked, there, there can be all sorts of despair, their hopes shattered. So I think I just want to sort of put that in for Aboriginal people. I think one of the things that I've learned to do in the last year, and I'm mindful that we have people uh, about to talk about meditation, is return to yoga. And I've been doing a lot of yoga this year, which I have felt, found very uh, helpful in terms of um, self-care and uh, finding energy and space um, to... Uh, carry on with the work yes and of course one has to act as an internal supervisor one has external supervision i read you know reading of psychoanalytic material is very enlivening writing is also very helpful so all those things go towards self-care but i'm reminded um that at the conference you said something wonderful about self-care which was actually uh on the morning when everyone came together to talk and it was very moving and uh i must admit there was a lot of distress 
in the room and I found what you said extremely helpful so I think maybe you might like to volunteer that and uh, perhaps to say what you said because I've gone back to it and found it very helpful. Oh, thank you. I, I, this is a reference to the two days conference really left all of us with sinking hearts at times and that's what is used in the expression of counter-transference, the technical term. Actually, there's a slight difference. I would actually say that's vicarious trauma rather than counter-transference. But anyhow, the point that I try to bring to all of us is that this is a sort of work that I use the metaphor for deep-sea diving. And the two rules with deep-sea diving, first is to remember to breathe. Now, that may sound, you know, gee, this is 101, but you do have to remember to breathe because in trauma, it takes your breath away. Secondly, you never go diving alone. You always have a buddy. And I had, fortunately, Ken, who was there, not Kent, but Ken, uh, and he was reminding us of this uh, necessity to breathe after the lectures, after the presentations. And that actually is the restorative self-care and safety measure that we can all exercise within the encounter and indeed once we finish and in between the next session and the following session. So that just for those who are interested, that's not an apology, it's an essential part of this work at Cassie that the professionals must look after themselves if they're going to turn up the next occasion to be able to receive what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and importantly, what they're feeling and disconnecting from. Mm. And can I just say, I think you also said something about not coming up too quickly, which I thought was very helpful, both in terms of thinking about the work, but also in terms of recovery. Mm. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for all the um, very important work that you're doing. We're very grateful on behalf of the Australian community. Uh, And it's time for our second special guest. Um, So let me tell you all about him. Gen Kelsang Dornyang is a Buddhist monk sitting here with us in the studio today. He is the principal teacher of both Kadampa Meditation Centre Australia in the Dandenong Ranges and Kadampa Meditation Centre in Melbourne on Queen Street in the CBD. Dawn Ying regularly teaches throughout Australia and he's an engaging and light-hearted teacher who makes uh, Buddhism's teachings clearly applicable in the modern world and modern life. He's also a student of Genla Kelsang Daekyung. I really hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, And she is the general spiritual director of the New Kadampa tradition. Genla Daekyung is a Buddhist nun and she's groundbreaking in her role as the first female Western nun to be head of a major Buddhist spiritual tradition. And lo and behold, she's going to be visiting Australia this coming January to give a public talk that's open to everyone at the Melbourne Exhibition and and Convention Centre on the 4th of January. And we will tell you a lot more about that um, later on in the show in case you'd like to go along. But first, Dawn Ying, can I welcome you to Triple R? Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, I was reflecting this morning on... uh, why I was feeling extra nervous about the show today and um, the concept of interviewing a Buddhist monk on air. And it occurred to me that this is not a very normal thing. It's not something that the general public get to do very commonly to sit down and chat with a a real live practicing Buddhist monk, let alone ask him any questions we want on air. And it led me to wonder about how you came to be 
a Buddhist monk who also engages with the media so freely? Well, I mean, I don't engage with the media that often. But um, the thing about the genuine practice of Buddhism is that it doesn't make you kind of unusual or exclusive or ultra-spiritual, you know, or, or alternative. It just makes you happy. <laughs> so if you're happy, then you can, you know, and I, he- and I hesitate to use the word be normal because I don't really know what normal is, but if you're happy, you can perhaps be conventional. So you can slot into whatever circumstances or situation that you find yourself because you're, you're happy. Whereas a lot of people base their happiness on things like, what do people think of me? And as soon as you go into that dark alleyway, you'll start to put yourself under extra pressure that you don't really need because you're juggling these emotions. What, what are people thinking of me? And that's interfering with your ability just to function mm. in, 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 a, in a normal environment. You know? And I... I guess when I think about the journey you've taken into Buddhism, uh, it doesn't strike me as odd that you have such um, an ease in describing, you know, the daily difficulties we we all encounter because, in fact, uh, I was going to say in a past life, but I don't mean that literally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Um, But a few decades ago, you know, you were actually living in South London working in telecommunications and somehow transitioned from that to living in Melbourne as a Buddhist monk. Can you tell us a bit about that fascinating story? Well, a few decades does age me a little bit more than I actually am, but I can accept. (laughs) I can take that back. Yeah. But um, (laughs) I, um, yeah, I used to work in telecommunications in, in, in London and also in Sydney, and um, I moved from London to Sydney at the time of the, the, the Y2K bug. So just before, or just after the year 2000, I moved to Sydney. And I was able to do that because I got paid a really big bonus because they were paying their staff to stay around because, you know, they were going to need people if the world ended. <laughs> just, I don't know, pick up broken glass. And, so technical <laughs> people were paid a lot of money in 1999. And then I used that money to, to buy a one-way ticket to... Australia and to explore a bit of the world to try to understand what the point was you know what's the you know question that many people ask what's the meaning of life and I got to Australia and I ended up not finding the meaning of life and working in a in a merchant bank on a trading floor in a role that was functioning to connect trading floors with other trading floors and I think uh, we discussed this earlier but what I saw and I'm not saying this is across the board, but I saw people ex- experiencing really utter misery in the name of wealth, possessions and position. Like young people with cocaine habits and people with huge anger problems where they were smashing stuff up. And again, I don't want to say everybody is, is like that, but I saw these things. And, and it made me realise, you know, you'll never find happiness in wealth. You'll never find happiness in position and you'll never find happiness in material possessions. I think I gave you the example of some of these high-profile people were, were given Maseratis as perks, as gifts, but they were also some of the most miserable people I'd ever come across. So, you know, if you're trying to find meaning and, uh, and purpose in your, in your worldly career, well, I can say I saw that there's no end to that and, and, and as a side effect, often people become a lot more stressed and a lot more miserable. In fact, I'll tell you one quick story. 
We love a story at Radiotherapy. Okay. <laughs> I was sitting at my desk and, and, and I'll just tell you as a side point, I'd just begun my Buddhist training and I was studying our mortality. And because we do that in Buddhism, it's a big thing for us because if we really come to terms with the fact that we're just visiting, we're just passing through, we have a lot of peace and happiness and we have a lot of ability to prioritise what's really important in life. Anyway, there was a, a, a guy in my department who was a gra- what we call a graduate trainee. So this is one of the cream of Sydney's graduates learning to be the future of the, the, the place I was working. And he, and he came up to my desk and he said, Hey, what's your 10-year plan? And, and, you know, I was a bit on the spot. But all I could remember that in that moment was what I'd been studying. So I said, well, hopefully not to be dead. <laughs> and then I thought, better return the question, what, what's your 10-year plan? And he listed exactly where he was going to be in 10 years, the position, the role, the salary. So I said, oh, interesting, what's your 20-year plan? And he, again, he said, I'm going to be this regional. This. He knew he had it all planned out. So, just for fun, I asked what his 30-year plan was and his face dropped because he didn't have one. And when we talked a bit further, I sort of felt a bit sorry for him because it seemed like he was never allowing himself to live. He was just chasing this perpetual carrot. And I thought on the morning of his 10 years, it would be immediately replaced by his next plan, his next goal. And I thought, when will you stop and smell the flowers? When are you going to relax and enjoy your life? Because after your 30 years are up, you're pretty much finished as a professional. You're, well, you're certainly reaching your retirement age. Then maybe you play some golf. And then maybe, I don't know, what do you do? You die. That's the end, isn't it? And all of that wishing your life away had led to a life that hadn't actually started. So for me, I saw all this and I thought, you know, there's, I've travelled, I've had, I, I, I had a good career, great relationship, lived in a nice area, but I thought none of this, for me, none of this is it. Mm, lolly dog. I'm a big believer in uh, happiness being very much an internal process and, and self-worth and self-esteem coming from inside rather than all the things you're talking about, the external factors. How much is happiness a solo journey and how much is it a community journey because we talk about you know community dis- um, disengagement and people being um, I guess separated from loved ones in the community lack of communication all those sorts of things is it a solo journey or is it a community journey that's a fantastic question and and we're living in a world where people are becoming increasingly isolated you just catch the tram and and I don't think you'll see anybody not staring at a device and you know these things are called iPhones, aren't they? People are becoming absorbed into themselves and increasingly isolated. Now, to answer your question, it's, a, it's actually a bit of both because if we rely on community or on other people for our happiness or to make, uh, make us feel good about ourselves, we will become dependent. And I'll tell you a little story, actually, about that as well, about a, a question I had from a school kid. But on the flip side of that, we say in Buddhism that the real source of connectedness and one of the principal causes of happiness is to love. And who are the 
objects of that love. They are our family members. They're the people that we in our community, the people that we share this this world with. So you need you need people to be happy because you need we need to develop a good heart. We need to love, but we don't need attachment. Because the moment we become attached to someone, it's like we hand over the keys to our psychological and emotional stability and happiness. So, can you see it's a bit of bit of both? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to interrupt you before you you tell the story. Do you want oh. to tell the story first? No, go on. Go okay. On. <laughs> um, in one of the talks that you've given that's up on YouTube, um, so if anyone's interesting in, interested in hearing a bit more from uh, Dawn Ying, there are uh, videos on YouTube to watch. Uh, in one of them, you, you made a statement which I found quite confronting but also exciting sort of simultaneously, and I think it went like this. Our ability to lead a problem-free and happy life depends entirely on our ability to be positive, you know, so in such it depends entirely on our own mindset, which is a very confronting thing to be told. But also, if that's true, I feel this uh, um, surge of you know optimism and hope about what's possible for all of us as well. Yeah. I mean, I, my next question was going to be, do you really believe that? But I think I already know the answer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm totally card-carrying, <laughs> signed-up believer in the, the power of the mind to be happy. But, um, I mean, you, you can look at it in a, in a few ways. I, I, I'll give you a, a simple analogy. Um, people, people think, okay, well, if I follow the Buddhist path, I'm going to have to give up all this stuff that I believe makes me happy. But have you ever bought a cup of coffee and you're trying to be good, and you bought a small coffee, and then you get to the end of the coffee, and you're sucking the foam out, thinking, I should have spent the extra dollar and got the next size arm, because I'm not satisfied. (laughs) If you compare that mind with drinking a cup of coffee when you're already happy, you can taste the coffee. You can enjoy the coffee. So what I'm saying is, is... Um, we have to find this kind of middle of the middle way approach whereby we don't give things up, but we have to understand that our ability to derive any happiness or any satisfaction from the things in our life really depends upon the quality of our mind. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> Time for a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds it sounds wonderful that we all have the potential to in fact change our yeah. experience because it's an internally driven process. But there's something else that happens when I contemplate that and it's something about I don't know responsibility or, or guilt or you know am I the cause of all my problems then something along those lines. Yeah, Do you know a, what I mean? It's a good it's a good point and it's a it's a real cul-de-sac of a mind when we start thinking oh, okay, well, it's all my problem. Well, we can easily get a little bit almost kind of superstitious about the way to be happy when we start going down these lines. Like, um, you know, if we're able to keep a peaceful mind in difficult situations, then we are somebody with a peaceful mind in a difficult situation. Like, if you're on a train and your chair on the train is comfortable... But you look out of the window and sometimes you see some unpleasant suburbs 
and sometimes you see some pleasant suburbs, it doesn't really have much effect on you because you're sitting in a comfortable chair looking out the window. If we've developed the ability to keep our mind peaceful by understanding which states of mind make truly make us suffer and which states of mind truly make us uh, happy, well then life becomes like passing scenery in which we're happy. Now if we if we entertain this okay I'm I'm it's my fault that I'm unhappy it becomes a little bit like do you know when you're a kid maybe not for you guys but certainly I was perhaps a naughty kid <laughs> when <laughs> parents say to you do not play with matches do not play with matches and the reason they're saying that is because they care because it's dangerous you could do yourself an injury you could burn some property down if we then play with the matches and we then get burned, we could think, you know what, my parents were right. If I didn't play with the matches, I wouldn't have got hurt. Or we could think the matches are punishing me for disobeying my parents. When we start feeling guilty about our own states of mind, we've gone into the matches are punishing me for disobeying my parents. Because Buddha was never like that. Buddha was just a nice bloke. Like a happy, peaceful man that taught people how to be happy. He never said you should go into self-judgment, into guilt, because these things are self-defeating. They're part of the very problem. He just said, love others, develop a peaceful mind, and accept your unpleasant feelings. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, and we're talking to Gen Kelsang Dornying, a Buddhist monk. Dr Malice. I find that absolutely fascinating. Uh, and to bring back your earlier point uh, that connection is the basis of love but not attachment. Mm. So that sounds really to me very profound to make the distinction. With this story of the child with the matches, is the child then attached to the match story and then later becomes just connected to it or how does the child become happy with matches <laughs> well i mean the story is more of an analogy yes. of how we develop these strange views about ourselves. you know oh because my mind has gone a bit negative i'm creating my suffering i must be a bad person and that's simply uh, a, a, an incorrect way of viewing ourselves. it would make more sense to think okay i've got an unpleasant state of mind right now i need to learn to accept so is just because this is fascinating because as you said a parent's job is to say to a child don't play with matches exactly so they'd be sort of reneging on their job if they didn't say that the child's job is to then figure out if they hurt after playing what's the reason and it sounds pretty reasonable they went against mum or dad's wish well, I mean, basically, they they didn't follow an instruction that would have protected them. Right. It's not like they're being punished because the parents weren't trying to, yeah. to, to punish them. The parents were saying, look, I love you. Mm. And if you want to be happy and safe, don't do that. Right. And the same way we're saying, if you want to be happy, don't think like that. Right. You know. Beautiful. Dawning, I feel like we are just scratching the surface. I know, and I didn't get my story in. <laughs> it's all my fault. <laughs> 
And we've only got a minute left and I don't want to finish the show without mentioning um, this amazing opportunity that's coming up in January. Um, Can you tell us a bit about this uh, public talk called How to Transform Your Life that's happening in January? So, as you mentioned in the the introduction, my teacher, uh, Gena Dekyong, She's the uh, general spiritual director for the, for our Buddhist tradition worldwide, and she's she's been to Australia before, but not for many years. And she's going to come to Melbourne to talk at the convention centre to give simple but highly effective techniques for developing these states of mind that we've been discussing. She also she'll, she'll walk us through some very slight changes we can make in the way we relate to the modern world and our family and our work and our life around us so that the things of our life are the causes of our inner peace rather than the causes of our anxiety Hmm. and then as a result we can have a happy life so that's why it's called how to transform your life and as you say it's at the convention center on january the 4th everyone's welcome we'll put the details on our facebook page if you're interested um dawning thank you so much for your time it's gone so fast but it's been a great privilege thank you so much This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.